it is, ladies and gentlemen. Look, real estate has so many different aspects that you can invest in today. We're gonna be talking about some self-storage. So if you're looking to diversify your portfolio, then this episode's for you. Here we go. Shut up and sit down. Look, a business can give you everything you want in life. Prestige, wealth, freedom. It can also take everything away from you. This show is for those who are willing to take that risk. These are the real life stories of entrepreneurs. But before we start, I have one small favor to ask. Please leave a comment. It can be advice, critiques, tips, feedback, or share this with someone because your engagement is the most valuable and most powerful form of social currency. So thank you, and welcome to another episode of Business Plus. Attention, real estate investors. Are you looking to diversify your real estate investment portfolio? Do you want to gain insight from successful entrepreneurs who've built and managed successful businesses in the self-storage industry? Well, today's guest is here to help you out. As a seasoned real estate investor and entrepreneur, our guest has built a self-storage portfolio worth over $300 million. In this episode, he's going to share his knowledge and expertise to help you tackle the pain points on how to successfully diversify your real estate investments. Our guests will share valuable insights and strategies for real estate investors just like you. So let's welcome to the show, the one and only Mr. A.J. Osborne. <music> Promise the party, my friend. I hope you enjoy. Dude, best, best intro I've ever had. Hands, <laughs> hands down. down yes that's what i'm talking about man that's what i'm talking about like i said if you ain't podcasting having fun every day what are you doing it for <laughs> yeah you take the cake man i love it that was awesome uh, well let's jump into it dude um look uh like i said earlier there's so many different aspects when it comes to real estate investing you can have tough markets up markets down markets you are in a space that is a, a little bit unique, a little bit different. It's generally not so much for beginners, but if there was somebody who wanted to get into the self-storage space, um, what's some advice you'd give them for, for getting started? Yeah, so I, I actually kind of argue this one, and I think it's a pretty big misconception that people may have. I think that when we think commercial real estate, things like that, we just think huge, right? Yeah. You're like, these are expensive. It's out of my league. Well, when we're looking at self-storage, we have facilities that we see. In fact, I even had a facility that we took to my group that was $250,000 that was 80 doors in Colorado. And I asked uh, some people, I said, how much would a duplex cost where you live? Where I live, 300 to 400,000, mm -hmm. two doors for a duplex, 80 doors for 250, 300,000 on this storage facility. And I think that's one of the largest misconceptions that people have is they think, oh, it's either massive. I can't do this. When actually there are facilities that are under $300,000 all over the United States that are small storage facilities. And if I think about it, what's more risk? A couple doors versus lots of doors. And how much upside do you have on a duplex when there's certain levers that you, you just can't even pull, right? So there's only so many things you can do, right? I have rental rate increases and usually they're mapped out. These are long-term contracts, right? Storage facilities, 
you go and you buy a storage facility for $150,000 and it's got 50 doors. You can walk in there, you can clean it up, get rid of delinquencies. You can start marketing, raising rents, specialty products. Um, there's a lot you can do there to rise that gross revenue. The more you rise revenue, we're based on value on net profit cap rates is how we look at it, right? So your net profit. So buy it, increase that gross revenue, that net profit grows and your value increases by a multiple of it. And in self-storage, you can do it quick. Why? Because we have short-term leases. And so there, for me, I look at even beginners, there's a lot of opportunity in self-storage. And I think way more than not only most people think, but a lot of commercial real estate assets have to offer. I think part of the misconception is also managing two doors is a lot easier. You're right. The upside for income, depreciation, I mean, not having vacancies, it's way better with 50 doors, 100%. But I think when people look at a commercial building or a commercial investment versus a residential, they're familiar with residential. They live in one, right? So they know what it takes to change the toilet and to do these things. Even though they don't want to, they know what that entails versus when you start looking at self-storage, now you're like, well, what does a contract look like? Am I the one who's going to be selling stuff? Like, what if I, what if people are like, I don't know, breaking bad in one of my units or something, you know what I mean? Like, what, what do I do? I think there's so many questions in that space that that's where the beginner investor kind of just says, you know what? I don't know what a cap rate is. I don't know how to manage these things. I'm not even going to look at that opportunity. What would you say then? That's exactly right. And what I say is the idea is that you are not familiar and you're interpreting that with risk. When in all reality, the contracts are shorter, they're more clear, they're way more beneficial to you. You provide way more protection. Leases are long. They give lots of rights to your renters. You have toilets that they can change or break. We don't have toilets in storage. Nobody's living in our units. We don't have to deal with any of those problems at all. There's no dogs. There's no nothing. No people. It's a garage. And you can only put stuff on the ground. And if you do anything we don't like, or we just don't like you, we kick you out. Mm. You don't have a choice. So in reality, although you may not be familiar with it, it is actually easier. And I think that's one of the things that we try to teach people and show people and get them over maybe this mental hurdle or gap that just because you may think it's more complicated, right, actually doesn't translate when you're looking at operations. It's not actually, you know, it can be way, way simpler, way less risk and uh, easier to operate. There's nobody calling you at 12 o'clock at night. You don't have all those problems you have with tenants. It's a it's a cement ground and a, and a box. How about like identifying the right property? Because I think that's also one of those issues yeah. where you're like, okay, well, what do I look for when I'm looking for a self-storage unit? Am I going to develop this thing? Am I buying something that already exists? Am I looking for a place that's surrounded by apartment complexes? Like yep. what what kind of aspects of you know property searching do I need to focus on if I'm going to look for a profitable self-storage property. So let's start with the first, an acquisition. Now, the wonderful thing about self-storage is the simplicity of it and that it produces net income. And that's what we value off it. When you're looking at places like houses to rent out or duplexes, people that are not looking at those for investments are also looking at them. I may want to live in it. 
right? Mm -hmm. So now you have other factors of value that come into it that don't actually play a role at all in storage. It's simply show me your P&L. What are your expenses, which there may be a, you know, small facilities. It may be very simple, right? A few line items. Utilities aren't really a thing, right? You don't have those. And then what's your net income? And then if I have to buy it, what's the net income produce and what's the return on that? Now, to the bigger you go, obviously complexity grows. That's the same with every single real estate asset out there. And the bigger you go, the more things you have to make sure you get right. But in storage, the one thing that I tell people is demand is all that matters. Supply and demand. It dictates everything, meaning you can be an absolute idiot and be successful in storage if there's demand. You can be the smartest person in the world and fail in self-storage if there's no demand. If you can get the very simple things right, it's fine, right? So demand dictates everything in storage. Is there enough demand to supply or for the current supply, okay? If there's enough demand, are they full? Can you raise rents? Do you have occupancy issues? Which if you're buying, you should be able to look at that asset and see its history. You can also look at the other assets around town, which are generally, if you're in small towns, it's small facilities where lots of people start. Most people don't go and say, yeah, I'm going to go down into Southern California and I'm going to buy a $30 million storage <laughs> facility, right? That's not normally how people start. So no. if you're in small towns, small storage facilities, you say, let me look at the other facilities in town. Maybe there's three storage facilities. Maybe there's five or six, but then you can go and ask them, you know, what's your vacancy? Do you have any rented? And then I can just plot out on a paper. Here's all of these storage facilities. Here's how much vacancy they have. And I can look and say, is there demand in this market? And that is the most important thing. If there's demand, rates will go up. Then you want to really look at that market and say, what are the things that will stop demand? Normally speaking, growth rate. Are people leaving the city? Is it being vacant? The same things that would affect multifamily, for example. Housing, for example, that has to do with uh, demographics and growth rate of storage. The other thing that you need to look at that's really important on storage is the supply factor. Are they building new storage facilities? Have they built a new storage facility? That's the one thing as a beginner you need to stay away from is they're putting a lot of new supply on that market you may get demand wrong and you may not know how that supply will affect that market. So if they're building a big storage facility with a 600 units or something like that, you may not know exactly if that will hurt demand. So those are the things you want to work, uh, really look out for. So make sure that there's demand there. And by demand, I want to look at occupancy and rents, meaning are rents rising? Have they been rising? Could they rise? And is occupancy high? meaning that even when rents went up, occupancy didn't move. And then is there anything coming into play factors that would take away or add to demand? So is it growing? Like we're going to continue having future demand or is the city shrinking or is new supply coming on board that would dampen demand? Really, that's the heart of self-storage and understanding it as an investment. If you get that right, you can learn most things along the way. Of course, as we get bigger, complexity rises a lot. And that's one of the things though that I like about self-storage because you can really grow into it.
Now, as you get bigger, you do things like we do. We do dynamic pricing, right? We do multi-story, 260,000 net rentable square foot developments with contractor storage, climate controlled, specialty storage, drive-through, pump stations, RV lots, all sorts of stuff that we start to add and build very dynamic and complex businesses. Um, I focus heavily on tech in the space and marketing, uh, a lot of data-driven decisions. But when you're starting out, you don't have that complexity. I didn't. Nobody did starting out in storage, right? It was very simple. I started out small towns, really small towns, right? Where we could get into assets that were cheaper and then grew from there. And it's a great asset to be able to grow and scale into as you want. That's phenomenal because, again, the the whole investment opportunity is it comes down to the cap rate. It comes down to, is this thing profitable? If I find this property, will I will I make some money? Look at the supply. Look at the demand that's available. Look at your comp competition coming to market. If there is any competition coming to market. And then the rest you said, we can kind of figure out. So I'd imagine there are always potential risks when operating a business, whether it's going to be personnel, whether it's going to be you know litigation or whatever happens in a, in a particular property, but that we can pretty much figure out as we go. Um, what about financing, right? So, so a lot of times when you're looking at these properties, you can turn the cap rate around, right? You can, you can get in and make some changes to help increase that profitability. Yes. But what about upfront when you're looking for some of these financing options um, to, to acquire the property before it has that uh, increased cash flow that you're going to put into it? How does that affect acquiring the property? Yeah. So first things first is you got to make sure your information is correct, meaning that rent rolls, taxes, all the same things you would look at any investment property. Okay. I want to verify that the people that are renting it are paying it. How many people are actually renting? How many uh, uh, are paying at what prices? So making sure that they're actually getting charged. So delinquencies, right? You want to look at all that kind of stuff. You got to have that to provide that to the bank anyways. Now, when you're looking at financing, generally speaking, in self-storage, we put 30% down as a normal rule of thumb, okay? Um, but in self-storage, you can use uh, small business loans. Actually, they really like storage. And uh, when you look at the storage facility, it is a commercial asset, meaning that the bank is looking at it more on the asset side and the assets capability of producing income to pay off the debt and how risky that income is. Like, will it be able to continue paying off the debt? Then they look at the individual and they say, are you going to run this thing into the ground? Do you have a business plan, right? How are you going to be able to take this and grow it or at least not lose money to pay us? That's what they're going to be concerned about. So I like to tell people, you, this is a real estate asset. You treat it like a business. You show up to the bank with a business plan. Here's exactly our strategy. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how we are going to manage tenants, right? You want to be very professional and you want to look like you have it together because you want to gain conf the bank to gain confidence in your ability to operate. And that's the most important thing because the bank is going to loan money if they say this is a great, safe, secure asset, it's producing lots of cash flow, you're buying it right so it can pay the loan plus pay profit, and you're not going to do anything to ruin this asset. Also, you've done the homework to show the bank that there's plenty of demand and there's no risk in new supply coming up. In fact, demand will continue to rise. So the bank will then gain confidence in you. 
Now, if you can't, some people go out and get KPs or key persons, right? Or investors that can come in alongside them, just like any other real estate asset you would. So normally speaking, we put a little more down than you would in other types of real estate, multifamily, single family housing. We put 30 to 35% down depending. Local banks, credit unions are great, especially when dealing with smaller facilities and smaller markets. Um, once you get into big cities and really big assets, you know, 5 million plus, you options vary even, even more for there. But small assets, smaller amounts of money, local banks and local credit unions are great options. All right. So we've uh, we've identified a property. We looked at some of the key factors that make that property property profitable. We go to the bank. We get financing by by developing a business plan. Um, they're saying, all right, it's good to go. Now we're going to acquire a self-storage property. And my question is, what if you've never managed a property before? What if you or, or you've never managed people to manage properties before? Uh, what happens in that next step? How do you go about managing the business? Because essentially this is a business yes. um, when you haven't done that in the past. So, you know, self-storage, first of all, you need to just familiarize yourself with the asset. You need to learn the lingo and the jargon and everything else. But really, um, if you're starting out and you're starting out small, keep it simple. You can hire a third-party management company. But honestly, if you're dealing with 40 or 50 tenants, that may seem like a lot. Like somebody may say, that seems like a lot. But when you're in storage, that's not a lot. Like you could have 40 or 50 tenants, put them all on auto pay. And you might not ever have a call a month unless it's from somebody trying to move into your facility and whether you have any openings or not. So you need to be able to collect money. Okay. So put them on auto pay. You need to have a website right? You need to be able to market it. If you have vacancy, you want to fill that vacancy up. The one thing that is really kind of the outlier is if somebody stops paying. Now your lease, which you can actually get a lease agreement from the state associations that is already ready and provided according to the state laws. Every state has a state association for self-storage. They have them. You can go literally just get them. And those leases have the eviction process which is outlined because it's all dictated on state law. Now, storage, it's really easy. You basically, they don't pay, you inform them, and the state regulates the amount of time before you can evict them. If they don't pay, they don't get out, then we have auctions. You can auction off their unit. Now, unlike the TV shows and auction wars, there's actually wet, uh, websites that you just get on, they're online auctions. You open up the door, take a picture of what's inside, upload it to the online auction and people online bid to try to get that auction, right? Or to try to get that unit. They do. Great. You give it to them. And if nobody gets it, you throw, you throw all their stuff away. You throw it away, open the door and rent it out to somebody else. That's so much easier than dealing with tenants because every state law has a bunch of, I mean, I'm in California, man. And let me tell you, it is a renter friendly state trying to get yeah. somebody out who's not paying rent. What a huge pain in the butt. You made it sound a lot easier, especially when I'm dealing with just people's stuff. And you never know, man. You you have an auction. You, you Nobody buys it. You find some gold in there. And, I, mean, I mean, you could quite literally find some gold in there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all kinds of different things that are that, that you'd be able to find in there. All right. Well, how about some mistakes? 
right? So you got people who are like, dude, this is a great opportunity. I want to take advantage of this. I want to make sure I, I get this done right. And then they go in full force. And what are some common mistakes that you see investors get into when they're trying to get into this space? Underwriting and demand. So meaning they're not valuing the facility right. And here's the mistakes that they make. Owners are not applying the actual expenses that they may have to the facility, okay? Or they're overcounting revenue. Maybe they're acting like revenue is there that is not. So they're saying, okay, well, these three units were renting, but they apply it to as if they were paying and they're showing that in their projections or pro formas, but actually the renters there aren't paying at all and they haven't been. So the key thing to do when you're underwriting is you have to get at the actual number that was paid, not what should be, not pro formas, but what was the actual income that came in and then applied expenses that are real. So, okay, it snows a lot here. You did no snow plowing. Have you ever plowed snow? Well, yeah, we, we plow snow every year. Well, you don't have that in the expense, right? Or what about a call center or a service person? Well, that's just me. I, I service it. Okay, well, how much does your phone cost? How much time do you allocate to that? Are you paying yourself for that, right? So it's making sure and doing a detailed dive into the expenses, although they made sim sound simple, lots of mom and pop and owners, they're not applying a lot of the expenses that are actually there because they just view it as, oh, well, it's me. I'm doing it. I'm doing mm -hmm. these things. And it's like, okay, well, just because you are, maybe I won't, but there's still services that need to be done, right? And so I look and I would want to get an actual representation of the expenses for anything that is being done in the facility and making sure I have a true number of that revenue to get to a true net, not pro formas, right? Then the next side is that they overpay or that people are justifying certain valuations for things that have nothing to do with the actual asset or its income itself. The smaller the units, a lot more you, you find this. I want this number, right? And it's, well, or you can make more if you do more. Well, then why didn't you do it, right? And so you got to get down to that real, real number. Then the next thing is overestimating or thinking that a storage facility down the road is charging 10 by 10s at $100 I'm going to charge the same amount. They're $50 now. I can upgrade and double my rent. Only find out that the storage facility down the road, maybe they only had two 10 by 10s and you have 50. And so you just get that numbers wrong. Like you get demand, supply and demand wrong. The easiest way to do this and to avoid this is to get a feasibility study done. You can actually hire third parties. We do them for outside. And you use these feasibility studies that look at demand, they look at pricing, they look at traffic, they look at the supply and demand on square footage across the market, competitors, and they provide you whole reports on it. And then you can actually give those reports to the banks. Now you have all the information on the characteristics of the competition, where rents are, how much demand there is, what has happened in the past and the future. You have demographics and everything else. So a lot of these problems are easily solved, but most of the time you've got to just get help with it, right? Which is true with anything. That's not any different. We did that when I was looking at a development or anything else. Starting out, we hired somebody else. Come do a feasibility study. They gave us this big report on the market, on our asset. We used that, took it to the bank. The bank loved it. 
it aligned exactly what we were saying. Here's the actual financials. Here's receipts. Here's taxes. Here's everything that we have, which means it's worth this much. Based upon this report, we think we can get rents to X and there's little competition or there's little supply. So that really shows that we can probably do that. The banks love it. Mentorship. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is, is there's already people who are successfully doing it. <clears throat> Mr. AJ Osborne, right? People who are already <laughs> doing it that can help you out when you have these questions because you will have these questions. Absolutely. I, and, and, you know, you had you talked about that solopreneur who's, who's not really, you know, calculating their actual expenses. Uh, one of the problems here is you don't want to get stuck owning a job and you want to make sure that yeah. you allocate some of these expenses for the, so that someone can come in and replace you. So you have some sort of exit strategy, which brings me to the scaling side. So, OK, we get into some of these uh, some of these um, storage facilities and we're, we're ready to rock and roll. We got one. Maybe we got two. We got a little bit of experience under our belt. How do you start to scale that? How did you take it to that next level where you're now in developments or working with RVs or working with, you know, uh, refrigeration units? Like what were, what were some of those steps where you can take that small experience and begin to scale? Yeah. So right now we have over, I don't know, 2.5 million net rentable square feet across 10 states. We have 80 plus employees, W2. And when you start out, the key things to understand value starts to lead you to understand a few things on how can I change value through operations. So when you buy that first one, you're going to say, oh, I did this and this, and that increased the income. Well, then when you look at another property, you go, oh, they're not doing those two things that I recognized. Now I could buy that one and do those exact same two things and, and lift income. And I know when I did it last time, it raised gross income by 15%, which added 300,000 of value onto my property. Now I see it. So then I go do it again. And what you start to do is you start to build out your management ability, your understanding of value that becomes more transferable. And then as you start to recognize, you can start to get other people to help you. I want you to find properties that match these descriptions, right? I want you, when we look at new units, I want you to do an audit and I want you to raise prices on these. You, you start to learn all of these things that you can do and you're building a business model and strategy. And as you're building that out, you're getting better at the financial institutions like you more. And then you start hiring people on to help you execute those strategies, find more and add more. So it's a self-fulfilling cycle that most people don't ever get into because they don't start. They don't even start. So they don't even know how to start building those up. At first we used VAs, right? I built out processes and systems. And then we started hiring people to execute those processes and systems that we wanted. And then every time we grew and expanded and wanted to grow more, right? We would identify those key areas that were important for us to grow. And we would continue working through that. So it is a kind of a step-by-step -step process. And I think most people just don't even take the first step. And that's the problem. But once you identify value, you can start to look at assets everywhere. The more value you identify, the more you understand markets, you can find holes in the markets. You can see where rents can go. You can all of a sudden say, I should develop here. I should buy here. This is undervalued. This one's not, right? Well, a lot of that really does just take doing it. It takes the experience to know and learn. And then you see what everybody else doesn't. It's taking action. It always comes down to taking action. That's the only way you're going to build the wisdom and experiences. You got to do something. You can't get a six pack by reading about it. You got to actually get down and do the work in order to get that done. All right, finally, let's go with trends. What are you seeing in the self-storage industry? 
Uh, do you like? Do you think it's gonna continue to grow? Uh, we're going into like a you know interest rates are going up in the real estate market. However, in, I'm in San Diego. Every type of construction I look at are apartment buildings. So for me, and if I'm looking at that, it looks like the trends are on the upside. What are you seeing for self storage? Yeah, so we see a softening in self-storage. So self-storage was crazy for the last three years. We don't believe that it'll keep up that way. It'll be a softening. We don't believe that that means there's a retreat or crash, anything else like that. We are actively building and, and buying. Um, but you do need to be very a lot more cognizant of supply and demand in markets. Because when we ramped up with all that cheap money, people built a lot in lots of places. So I do believe that there will be an uneven return structure within the United States for self-storage. Some markets will do amazing. Other markets are going to do okay. And then others probably won't do that great. I don't see a flood of defaults coming or anything else like that, but we definitely see a retreat to normal, which is good. That's not a bad thing because the last few years has not been normal. But the big trends that we're seeing is automation and technology and how that's changing self-storage, especially small facilities, which is all good for you because that helps with automation, that helps with hands-off management, remote management in other states. So all of that is really good. The technology has been pouring into the industry. Automation continues to grow stronger, which helps operators and individuals and people getting into storage. And that opens up an access to markets that are generally not looked at by big players. And that is really good for people starting out. Lots of opportunity created in that. So many boomers going into retirement, trying to exit companies. Uh, I mean, they've been probably doing their own self-storage, handling invoices with carbon copies. You can come in and automate and really make changes for that. You're absolutely right. All right, AJ, uh, before we head out, as we're running low on time, if people want to reach out to you, talk to you more about this what are you offering? What can you help people with? Are you looking for uh, investors? Are you looking for people who are trying to learn? What are you doing and, and how can they help? How can yeah, they find two you? Two things. We teach and we let other people invest alongside us. So largest self-storage podcast in the industry, self-storage income. Um, you can go check that out. Growing Wealth and Self-Storage is the best-selling book in the industry I wrote. It's on Amazon. Check that out. Um, you can come to our site, self-storage income for our events, everything else. We invest, we take investors, they come along with us. Um, we invest alongside us. And that is uh, Cedar Creek Capital. You can go check that out. Um, go to uh, the sites and to go to Instagram, follow me along there and you can see everything you want. Sweet. AJ, a wealth of knowledge today, man. And uh, you look pretty well rehearsed. You got a nice podcast microphone. And we literally did a 30-minute episode here that we're going to chop up and use for social media. So my question to you is, as many podcasts as you've been on, what was your experience like creating uh, basically short-form content on a long-form podcast with business bros? First one, I got to say, it's, I actually kind of like it. It's point after point. You're hitting it hard. We're building it through. You guys do an awesome job. Amazing intro. Um, I really like this format. Awesome, man. Well, I'm glad we're here to help. Like I said, ladies and gentlemen, look, there's a lot of different ways where you can park your money. There's a lot of different assets that you can dive into. Real estate is one of those special assets that can help you in so many different ways. And AJ's telling you, look, take a look at this class, self-storage. You're not going to be disappointed. You just got to learn a little bit. 
It's like anything else. You don't know what you don't know until you dive in and learn it, especially with AI and lots of automations going on. You can really turn this into a hands-off type of business or just invest alongside them. They'll help you out do that. Do that as well. AJ, thank you very much for coming on the show, ladies and gentlemen. We'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. Thanks, man. And we're out. It's over. Go home. Is your business in need of marketing? Try starting a podcast. But not just any podcast. Podcast like a pro. We can show you how to take your business from being invisible to becoming a brand people trust. Go to www.businessbros.biz to get started today.